welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Jude, Contend for the Faith. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains, under gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael or rather, we'll pause there, that's next week, starting in verse 9. <laughs> the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's go to Him in prayer. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, whose Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths, we pray that You would open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand Your Word and that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood, and that in nothing we may be doing in our lives, be it displeasing to your majesty. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, Jude begins this body of his epistle. You'll see here in verse 5 with a reminder. It's something that, quote, they once fully new. That Greek there could also be translated as something they already know. Jude, in other words, is not introducing anything new to the church. What he's doing is he is reminding them and he's reminding us through them of what we are prone to forget, which should lead us to say or ask, then what? What is it we are prone to forget? And the answer, look with me, is in this fifth verse. And the answer is found in one proper name and two past tense verbs. Three words, in other words. The answer is, Jesus saved and destroyed. Jesus saved and destroyed. Destroyed. Now, Jude, from these three words, is going to elaborate. He's going to provide historical examples. But the essence, and that's why I'm drawing your attention to one proper noun and two past tense verbs, is that's the essence. That's the essence of what we are to remember, what we are prone to forget, describing what our Lord has done, and in so telling us what He will do. He has been, He continues to be, the Savior of His people. But He who is the Savior is also the judge. 
He who will come and judge the world, Scripture says, in righteousness at the last day. Now Jude is writing to the church. And he's writing to a specific church who has fallen prey to, quote unquote, ungodly people. Deceivers who have crept into the church unnoticed. And they were, as we studied last week, and as you'll see in the first three verses or first four verses, they were perverting the gospel. They were promoting antinomianism, that is lawlessness. They were undermining Christ's authority in the church. Jude found it necessary then to write to the church. In fact, he says, I feel it necessary to appeal to you as the church to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. But so powerful was the deception that gullible believers and unbelievers were being led astray, as they are today. There is nothing new in this sense. But it causes me to pause at the very beginning of this passage and, and leads me to think, such strife in the church. Why? Why would Christ let such evil enter the church? Unless it is to include us in the battle that He may be glorified in our perseverance. Such are the mysteries of God that I do not understand. I would imagine you don't either. None of us do fully this side of glory. But we do know that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. And so what we must remember is that the way that the world behaves and the way that the world fights is not the way that we behave nor the way that we fight. Our defense is the faith. The historic Christian faith. That's our defense. What we believe about Jesus, which is integral to the gospel, integral to the Christian faith, what we believe about Jesus, who He is, and what He has done really does matter. In fact, I don't have time today, but what fun it would be for me to march you through church history and show you how church after church after church that is varied from the historical understanding of who Jesus is. I mean, you could just park it right there. But to go on, what He has done, what He will do in the end, churches that have varied from the essence of who Christ is and what He has done are led astray. And so, really, those three words in that fifth verse are the key focus today. And that's where I want us to start. I want us to start with the first, Jesus, Savior. I want you to think back with me in the Gospel of Luke, where we're told that the angel appeared to the Virgin Mary. Not only was she told of God's favor, her forthcoming conception, her birth of a son, but also she was told what she would name the child. Do you remember that? The divine imperative was this, and I quote, You shall call His name Jesus. 
Now, for us, that name has become so commonplace that it is very easy for us to forget what is bound up in that name, what that name means. Because the name Jesus, or the Greek Yesu, or the Hebrew Yeshua, that name means Yahweh, or as we translate it, the Lord saves. His name means the Lord saves. In other words, the name of God revealed to His covenant people in history, coupled with His saving purpose, is His name. You think back to what Mary sang in what we call her Magnificat. She begins her song of praise saying, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He in whom she rejoiced, she carried in her womb. That Jesus saves is central. It is integral to the gospel. But look back at verse 5 with me. Jude uses the past tense to point us back before His incarnation. He points us to the saving acts, His saving acts, of what we would call theologically His pre-incarnation. Look at it. Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Think about that. He who was in the beginning. He through whom all things were made. He without whom was not anything made that was made, redeemed Israel out of bondage. Now this probably sounds strange to modern evangelical ears. But it is consistent with what Scripture reveals about our triune God. You think about what we confess in our theology. There are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Ah, that is beautiful theology consistent with what the Word of God testifies. And describing our redemption, you have heard me say it. You have probably said it yourself in referring to our redemption. We say, what God the Father ordained, God the Son accomplished, God the Holy Spirit applies. It's a paraphrase of something that John Murray wrote. And in saying that, what we're saying is that our God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is active and part of our redemption. But God the Son and God the Holy Spirit did not abstain from saving acts within the Old Testament. God says in the very beginning of the prologue, Rick read it this morning, Exodus chapter 20. If somebody asks, how, does the, uh, how do the Ten Commandments begin? Uh, we say, well, it doesn't begin with, you shall have no other gods before me. It begins like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It begins with redemption, to which Jude elaborates. It was Jesus. 
It was Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. He who is called the Lord saves, appropriately so, saved a people out of Egypt. And you think with me about that. Oftentimes we think of Philippians chapter 2 and Paul's description in Philippians of the humiliation of Christ and how we are to have a mind like Christ and how we are to be a humble people because Christ humbled Himself. But the second half of that in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 9, Paul says this. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name of Jesus is precious to those who have been saved. We hear the name and it's almost, we just smile. Jesus, it is precious to us, but not to those ungodly people. Not to those who sought to pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus means nothing, to use the words of Jude here, means nothing to those who are perishing and so designated for this condemnation. You see, the world would have us believe, I don't have to explain this to you, but the world would have us believe that Jesus our Savior is not the Lord of glory, but in our day, an all-accepting pacifist whose concern is not the holiness of God, but patronizing my fallen pleasures. That's Jesus, who just gives me what I want, just leaves me in my sin and lets me indulge my own selfishness. Praise the Lord. <laughs> yeah, right. And this, this falsehood, Jude is here to correct, isn't he? We saw that last week. Here again, Jude says... Uh, that's not exactly, in fact, that's not at all like it is. Jude corrects, for our Lord Jesus who saved is also, now look back with me at verse 5, here's the second part, this Jesus, He also is the Jesus who afterward destroyed those who did not believe. End quote. Yeah. That's the real picture. He's the Jesus who saved. He is our Savior. He's the Jesus, the judge. And so he destroyed. And so I want to look at the second aspect, again drawing from verse 5. Because while the world would have us believe that since all mankind has life and breath and sunshine and rain and indeed everything to live and move and have our being, that, well, the judgment of God... That's like for those really passionate, hardcore Christians. Like, that's a little extreme, don't you think? Some would think that the judgment of God is merely an idle threat. And while you and I know differently, it is really easy for us to, well, 
amidst God's gracious blessings, He has been so good to me. He has been so good to you. And it's, it's really easy for us, amidst God's blessings, to just be lulled into a lapse of remembering that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And you say, when? Like a thief? You don't know. You don't listen to the jokesters, hucksters that tell you they know. Nobody knows but the Lord. But here's what we know. It will happen. Judgment does not come this moment. Not owing to divine absence. Newsflash, there is a God. Not owing to divine indifference. He is a holy God and He will judge sin. But because of patience. Peter teaches this. That God does not wish that any of His elect should perish. Final judgment then is mercifully delayed. But it is not delayed forever. To remind us of the certain day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly, Jude gives us three examples from history. Three examples of God's judgment. Look with me. The first example that he gives us is God's judgment upon Israel in the wilderness. And there is some debate about what event in Israel's history in the wilderness that he's referring to. But more than likely, what he is referring to is when Israel had traveled through the wilderness and they arrive at the border of Canaan. And after they had witnessed supernatural act after supernatural act after supernatural act, in fact, you want to go, what could they not have witnessed that would not have caused them to charge in to Canaan and to take the land? Instead, like many in the church today, they fell to fear-mongering. They became a people who had been delivered supernaturally. They became fearful to the point of an action Rather than trusting the Lord and proceeding in His miraculous provision, they were sent away from the promised land to wander in the wilderness, not for one or two years, but for 40 years and die in the wilderness. None but one and the next generation would enter into the promised land. It was a case all too common throughout church history. And that is that The fearful words of the few affect the belief of the many. The second example that Jude gives us possibly refers to an event in the sixth chapter of Genesis. And here's what happened. I'm just going to read a couple of verses to you from Genesis chapter 6. Quote, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. (laughs) That's in Scripture, by the way, right? Angels believed that women were attractive. Amen. All right. And the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. Now, 
as I've already tipped my hat, probably this Hebrew expression translated sons of God, that's, that's going to be the only thing anybody remembers from this sermon, you know? That one expression. All right, stay with me. The sons of God probably refers to angels who were assigned heavenly responsibility and ministry. But Jude says, here's what happened with those angels, those sons of God. They did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. In short, they chose heavenly desertion for human copulation. Now what followed for mankind as a result of this angelic interaction was the flood. What happened for these specific angels was eternal bondage in darkness of hell, awaiting judgment day and eternal torment. That's the second example. The third example that Jude gives us from history is the sexual immorality, notably the unnatural desire of homosexuality of the inhabitants of the region of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now you may remember, remember that the angelic messengers were sent and witnessed firsthand the perversion of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, who lusted not after Lot's daughters, but after the men. Same-sex attraction and activity is not a birthright, but a perversion of God's natural design and so judged by Jesus with destruction. In an act of mercy, you may recall, Abraham's nephew, upon Abraham's nephew, the Lord delivered him and his two daughters. But after the delivery... The region was judged. In fact, Scripture says that God rained down sulfur and fire out of heaven. In fact, it goes on to say, in summary, men, women, children, animals, and all the way down to the weeds on the ground, see also Genesis chapter 19, were incinerated leaving no evidence of civilization but for the rising smoke from the ground. Gone were the people, gone were their perversions, serving as an example, Jude says, of judgment to come. So those are the three examples that Jude gives us here. And in each of these three examples, think with me, what is he showing us in these three examples? He is describing a sinful behavior, whether it be unbelief or rebellion or sexual perversion, and then he's showing us the accompanying consequences. In each example, a divine verdict was made, but then also executed upon. But let me be clear. What Jude is doing here is not providing us merely with a historical lesson. What he's doing is he is teaching us by way of analogy. Like unbelieving Israel, like fallen angels, like the nefarious Sodomites, a punishment of eternal fire is due, and it is due all 
who will not trust in and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notably, those who intentionally deceive Christ's church. The sulfur and fire that rained down upon Sodom and Gomorrah ceased after their destruction. But here's what Scripture says does not cease. The lake of fire. It does not cease. It is prepared for Satan and sinners. All who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a fire that does not cease. It burns on and on. In fact, Revelation says, Day and night, forever and ever. And on judgment day, He who saved will judge. Jesus will sit on the throne of judgment. And those who do not believe the gospel, those who deny our, ma- our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, will be found guilty of sin and disobedience, and they will perish to their eternal punishment, which will have no end. But those whose names, Scripture says, are written in the book of life, those who have been made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ, those who by the Spirit have been persuaded and enabled to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel, shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Because you see, Jesus, the judge, is Jesus, our Savior, who once offering up Himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconciled us to God, is our Lord Jesus Christ. The Reformer said that He is just and justifier. He is our judge. He is also our justifier. We are sinners saved only by God's grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. No wonder the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says, there is no room for boasting. No, there's not. We are saved from judgment through Christ our Savior and through Him and Him alone. And so that's where I want us to conclude Jesus, the Lord. Jesus is our Lord. But Jesus said this. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I realize this is really basic for whatever reason, though. The gullible alive today and the gullible alive within the first century and everybody in between just doesn't seem to get this. So let me say it just as plainly as I can. Just because someone claims to be a Christian, just because someone uses the right terminology, just because someone calls Jesus Lord, doesn't mean it's true. It's that simple. It could be due to confusion. It could be due to self-deception. It could be due for political purposes. But intentional deception is equally possible. That's what Jude is addressing here. This is why it is so important for you and I 
so important for us to be grounded in the Word of God. We need to know the Word of God, not only for our growth in grace, but so also that we may be able to discern the truth. We are to be a people of the Word. And to be a people of the Word, we've got to know the Word. And to be a people of the Word and know the Word, we need to know how to rightly handle the Word. I mean, think about it this way. What would you say if someone in the church comes to you and says this? I had a dream last night in which God spoke to me. I have a word from the Lord. What would you say to that? Well, I would say, personally, if the Lord spoke to you, I need chapter and verse. I need to know. We're talking about 1 John 1, talking about Matthew 5. I need chapter and verse here. But you see, this is how Satan works. This is how Satan works. Because remember, he disguises himself as an angel of light. He uses the right words to deceive, to lead astray, to manipulate minds. He uses right words. And in fact, newsflash, Satan even uses the Word of God. He is a master of using Scripture. We see in the temptation of Jesus. He knows the Word. He just twists it to his own devices. And so this calls for you and for me to have biblically saturated discernment. We pr- I pray for you. I pray for me that we will be a discerning people. But I pray that it will be a biblically saturated discernment. I pray that when you and I hear error, you know my buzzers, right? Whoa, that is not in agreement with Scripture. That we will have a biblically saturated discernment. For example, how do we discern deception in the church? And I'm using this as an example because that's where Jude takes us in conclusion. Jude provides three characteristics to look for. Defilement, rejection, and dishonor. Those are three things he says, hey, and that's not all, by the way, but in this text, Jude says, I've got three things that you need to discern in the church. Pertinent in the first century, pertinent in 2024, defilement, rejection, and dishonor. Let me explain it this way. First, do those who claim spiritual insight, whether dreams or otherwise, Do they defile the flesh? Meaning, do they accept, advocate, or engage in sexual immorality? Jude's previous example of Sodom and Gomorrah is intentional. He's drawing from that. Sexual activity can take a myriad of perversions. And you don't need me to list examples of those perversions. But as we see in our own day, it is any way possible that Satan may pervert human sexuality while Scripture is just so simple and crystal clear that human sexuality is contained between one woman and one man in covenant union together for life. That's it. There are no exceptions beyond that. 
Second, do those who claim spiritual insight reject authority, meaning Christ's authority over their life and Christ-ordained authority in the church? Because you see, Christian, Christ's lordship over your life is not an option. Lordship is not plan B. It's not an add-on. I mean, you think about, and we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning, you think about what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I, talk about identity in our own age, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He goes on to say, now the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. You see, Jesus Christ is to be Lord over every aspect of our lives. Every. Every. My finances, my home, my work, my thought life, my physical life, every ounce of my being, Christ is Lord. And I thank God that He is. Because I am in sin and misery apart from Him. I'm a hot mess apart from the Lord. And doomed to eternal destruction apart from Him. But when I am in Christ, and I am by God's grace through faith in Him, in Christ, I have a new identity. And it's not all of the perversions in our world. It's Christ, and it's Christ alone, Him crucified and resurrected. It's just that simple. Third, Do those who claim spiritual insight blaspheme the glorious ones, which could also be translated here, dishonor God's angels? If you're looking for some of the more difficult verses of the Bible, you landed on one. Um, This is a difficult to translate and also difficult to interpret verse. But my understanding of this is is that Jude is probably referring to the supernatural. In other words, he is probably referring to a disregard for the supernatural, such as the reality of the spirit world, such as the reality of angels. In his second epistle to the Corinthians, Paul addresses this. It's one of the reasons why I think Jude is talking about it here. Paul says, We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In other words, there is no such thing as a Christian who is not a supernaturalist. Every Christian is a supernaturalist. Here's the way that C.S. Lewis put it. I think this is brilliant. He says, do not attempt to water Christianity down. There must be no pretense that you can have it with the supernatural left out. The Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. The Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, what is uncreated, eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into His own universe, and rose again, bringing nature up with Him. It is precisely one great miracle. If you take that away, there is nothing specifically Christian left. In other words, when a church degenerates into merely a meeting place for moral moral improvement or a gathering place for social justice or the like, there is 
to quote Lewis, nothing specifically Christian left. Our Lord Jesus not only died a human death, but through His death atoned for sin. Our Lord Jesus did indeed die, but also resurrected from the dead, conquering both sin and death. Our Lord Jesus, who resurrected from the dead, did not remain here, but ascended up into heaven, where He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Our Lord Jesus came the first time as a Savior. But when He returns with glory, He shall return to judge both the living and the dead. For He is Jesus, Savior, Judge, and Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we do not know the day of Your return. We do not know that last day or the judgment day. But we know this. We know that You, in Your grace, have revealed Your gospel to us. That we may be saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that You would help us as Your people to practice biblically saturated discernment, to not be led astray by the devil, but to live out lives of faithful obedience to You. We pray that by Your Spirit, You would enable us to live a life that glorifies You as we pray out, Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org. Thank you.